Kia ora and welcome to Goodfellow Podcasts. This episode is kindly supported by the Auckland Faculty of the Royal New Zealand College of General Practitioners. I'm Dr Louise Kugler and today I'm talking to Dumot Coffey about greening your general practice. Dumot is a general practitioner working in Christchurch, graduated from UCC in Ireland and has been living and working in New Zealand since 2002. He completed his postgraduate training here in New Zealand. Dermot is a member of Aura Teo Council since 2018 and has a special interest in the role of general practice in the response to climate change. Dermot, welcome to the Goodfellow podcast. Thank you, Louise. Thank you for having me on. So today we're going to be talking about practical, environmentally responsible changes that we can make in our practices today to create a sustainable future. So starting with a plan, everyone knows starting with a plan that is written down is a great place to start. So I'm interested in how you implemented your green plan into your practice and why did you feel that it was important? Well, the plan in the practice I'm working in now was implemented before I started there. So um, I'm actually working in University of Canterbury Health Centre and they implemented a green plan over probably the last three to four years through the university was put in to reduce the amount of paper, electricity um, and so forth. And it was a a university-wide program. They had different levels, fern levels they called them, one to four. They reached the highest level and what was interesting was that at the time they did it they got really no support um, or no acknowledgement from the college for the work that they had put in and I suppose one of the things that I have been I suppose trying to to do over the last few years is maybe to bring it to the awareness of the college um, that there were a lot of general practices within the country who would be willing to go down this route and that really they should be putting into place mechanisms whereby the work that people do is acknowledged um, and essentially to bring it into the cornerstone process, the sort of maintaining clinical standards process. Um, And just last year at the end of the year, this was just immediately pre-COVID, they have announced that they would be willing to bring that in as part of a, a voluntary, it wouldn't be compulsory, but it would be as one of the modules that they would bring in in under the new uh, maintaining clinical standards um, program that will be brought in and then COVID happened. So things have been slightly delayed, but uh, not stopped, I would hope. Yes, there's been a lot of change with COVID. We'll talk about some of those in a moment. But thinking about how we can implement our plan, often identifying specific areas for change can be helpful. Energy is an area that I often think is managed more by default rather than design. We think of it as an overhead rather than a variable cost that we can control when we're thinking of energy and electricity use. What can we practically do or what tips do you have for us to think about when we're thinking about our office and reducing energy consumption? Yeah, it's a very good point you make that things are in a big way taken out of our hands. I think in New Zealand... We're relatively lucky in that the majority, approximately 80% of the country's electricity is uh, from renewable sources, although there's been a bit of an increase in coal burning in Huntley and places like that recently. So essentially, in, in terms of environmental sustainability, in terms of climate change, 
it probably has less of an impact than it would in other countries. In terms of expenditure for the practice, I think it has a, a, a decent impact. So, I mean, the simple things that are done and the things that have been done within the university are things like making sure the lights are off when the building is emptied, make sure equipment, computers particularly, are turned off whenever possible. Screens should be shut down if you're leaving the room for 10 minutes. Um, just turn the screen off, leave the computer running. Um, simple things like light bulbs, energy efficient light bulbs and things like that. There's a bigger upfront cost to these things, but over the lifespan of the equipment, uh, you save, you make huge savings. So LED light bulbs would be by far the, the most important. Um, and then of course, heating of the building is, is another area. I mean, with that, again, I suppose we, we, it is difficult to retrofit a lot of the older buildings within New Zealand. If it's possible and renovations are being done, then energy efficiency um, insulation should be paramount, really. It's much easier to keep the heat in. And all these things, as I say, they save money. I think uh, from an environmental point of view, they're probably less important in New Zealand than in many countries. Um, I know an example I often give is we spent two years in Melbourne relatively recently. We went from a, a fairly typical suburban lifestyle in Wellington, you know, with a car and just your standard New Zealand lifestyle. We moved to Melbourne. We didn't have a car in the city. We essentially stopped eating meat. We didn't have a whole lot of money. And we did a bit of a CO2 audit at the end of the years that we'd been doing. And there was really no difference in terms of our family emissions. And it was purely because of the energy production in Australia and in Victoria is primarily brown coal. It's terrible. So things that you would think are good, like... Um, taking public transport, taking trains within the city have actually a quite a big uh, carbon emission attached to them because the energy for the electricity comes from coal. And those are decisions that are made by governments. And I think that in terms of the biggest, single biggest environmental risk um, and crisis at the moment being the climate crisis, it's a political problem. And I think that is where the biggest changes have to be made is, is within within politics and within um, the, the sort of governance and setup of the country as a whole, because we, we're all living in the same environment. The changes we make as individuals are relatively small, and you can put a huge amount of effort in for very, for overall very little gain. You can, you know, get your own practice, your own lifestyle down to complete carbon neutrality. It's a drop in the ocean, really, overall. So, with, I mean, personal responsibility is important to a degree, but without the environmental change. It's, it's not enough, basically. And I think, I suppose, within general practice, I, I'll, I'll kind of bring it up now. I mean, the, there, there are different studies across the world looking at the impact of general practice and primary care in terms of uh, climate change. It, it, roughly speaking, the health sector in New Zealand is about 5% of the country's emissions. Um, that would be about on a par with countries like Australia. Little, maybe a little higher than the UK, but similar enough sort of figures. In Australia, there's no direct figures been worked out for New Zealand. In Australia, general practice, excluding pharmaceuticals, is about 4% of the overall health carbon emission um, amount. So that's 4% of 4% or 4% of 5%. So it's a relatively small number that excludes pharmaceuticals. And I'll get onto that in a minute because pharmaceuticals is about 20 to 25% of the total healthcare emissions is, is, is directly from pharmaceuticals. And 
that number is far higher in general practice and primary care. But um, I think our, our role as, as doctors, not just GPs, but all doctors really, our, our role exceeds our, our impact to a degree. I think we have a, um, an important public health role to play in terms of mitigating climate change. And as well, because the, the sort of co-benefits that go along with climate change mitigation are so huge. Um, just healthier lifestyles. And we see it, you know, we probably see it in general practice all the time that the determinants of health really are outside the practice office and that changing them is, is a huge, it's hugely difficult, but I think we have probably a, um, a bigger role to play than we've maybe been playing up to now, notwithstanding that we're, you know, all overworked and things like that as well at the same time. <laughs> Thank you. I totally agree. I totally agree. It's much bigger than what we do on our day-to-day basis, but it's good to feel that you are making some important choices and changes. Mm. Just thinking about the practical things, um, you know, as I look around my office now, there are lots of disposable items that have crept in over the last few years. And we live in a world where things are disposable. So speculums and surgical instruments are now being promoted as a cost-saving item and many practices are using them. What are your thoughts on things like these? I've two thoughts. I, I completely agree with you that, I mean, I've, I suppose, been working in medicine now for nearly 20 years and I, I've seen the transition from the reusable to the disposable, particularly over the last 10 years. I mean, things like speculums and just uh, minor surgical equipment and things like that. The, there's definitely, there's clear evidence as has, has, has come through. I mean, there've been studies done in, in, in areas like anesthesia in Australia, um, and they show that the cost savings and obviously the environmental savings are there as long as the entire cost of the equipment is taken into account. So from development, manufacturing, transport, use, and disposal. But what happens really is things like disposal is not taken into account, essentially. Um, And things like carbon emissions that are embedded within products is not taken into account. It's passed on. It's passed on to the next generation, really. I mean, it it, it will come back. There's there's no avoiding it. But um, that these, these, these are not taken into account. And if they are taken into account, there's a clear benefit to reusing, sterilizing and reusing equipment. And that's in Australia. Within New Zealand, the benefit is even bigger because the sterilization is run off renewable energy, um, which was the single biggest cost in terms of finances and in terms of uh, environmental impact for reusing equipment. In New Zealand, of course, Pharmac are hugely important in terms of uh, the procurement of equipment as well as medications. Um, there was a, a, a bill up for submission last year um, and we submitted on that asking that Pharmac would take into account the carbon emissions of um, and the environmental impact of equipment that they are funding and that they are offering for, uh, for use. Um, but to date that hasn't happened. I mean, I think it, it would be simple enough to get it in. And as well for things like pharmaceuticals, um, I think it would be relatively easy. It would be a bit of work, but it would be relatively easy to get on the box of medication that the carbon cost would be would be would be there would be visible. So that I think overall, if things can be reused, they should be. <clears throat> In general, that's the kind of loose rule of thumb. The, the one other thing I would say is that the equipment 
um, it's a very visible form of kind of environmental cost and environmental pollution, being honest, throwaway speculums and things like that. Dressing packs, you know, if you're like me, I'm just opening them and throwing this stuff out, it's shocking. But when you look at things like climate change, I do keep going back to climate change, it's obviously not the only environmental issue, but it's probably the biggest. When you look at things like climate change, it's in, in primary care, the environmental cost of equipment is dwarfed by that of pharmaceuticals. So it's the unseen costs, I think, that are much more important for us. In, in the United Kingdom, the overall emissions from primary care, about 60%, up to 80%, depending on the, uh, the practice involved, is comes from, from medication prescriptions. And there's a couple of ones within that that... Um, probably the most important and the number one is meter dose inhalers which are, to me were shocking because if, if if anyone else is like me they would have a habit of just handing out the salbutamol if someone comes in just take the take the inhaler there you go um each inhaler each meter dose inhaler of salbutamol 200 puffs it's equivalent to driving a corolla for 500 kilometers so every every single Dose, two puffs per dose, every single dose is equivalent to 500 grams of CO2 equivalent, and that's the propellant in them. And in, in the UK, it's 4% of the entire NHS climate change budget is inhalers, and our use here of, uh, dry, of beta dose inhalers is even higher than in the UK. It's about 75% there, and it's, it's more than that here. So I suppose if there was one message I wanted to get across to GPs, it's to switch to dry powder. Um, the CO2 cost of dry powder inhalers is less than 10% of that for meter dose inhalers. And I, I was pleased, I think the recent guidelines that have come out, the recent respiratory guidelines have come out, have, have they, they acknowledged that it was there in the small print on, on, on one of them. It was good to see. I thought they could have made more of it because it totally backs up what they're saying about switching to using um, meter dose inhalers um, and to incorporate them as a sort of a PRN or regular use of both. And from the ages of eight upwards is what's recommended and possibly from five upwards if kids are good with the technique. There's groups obviously who will never really, you know, you're not going to be using one in a two-year-old, but I think we can definitely make a switch and I would have a huge impact compared to anything that's done within your practice that would be the single thing that would make the biggest impact right now. And it's the low-hanging fruit, really, that's there to be picked. I think the other things are there. They will help. It's not to say things shouldn't be done, but um, if there's one simple change that people want to do, it's to, you know, go into the dry powder inhalers and uh, get going with them. I'm a big sinner in terms of the meter dose. It's just been my practice, you know. It's just the one you reach for. You go for the Simbacort, you go for the Salbutamol, and you're used to using them. You're used to explaining to people how to use them. That will change. I think in the university, maybe it's a little bit easier because we've got a cohort of fairly, you know, eager and um, educated people who, who are happy to make a switch. Um, but definitely new patients go for the dry powder straight away. Well, that's a great point. And we did a podcast uh, just recently with David McNamara about the pediatric guidelines. So that's fantastic. Thinking about um, medications for a moment while we're here, um, appropriate prescribing is always something that's on my mind. And I was a bit horrified to come across a 2009 study 
um, which was of 450 individuals in New Zealand, and it said that 56% of people reported that they collected all their prescribed medicines from the pharmacy, even if they didn't intend to take them. And of those, 25% said that they collect all of their uh, medication repeats, even if the medications are no longer needed. And an astounding 60% of respondents said that if there were ever any unwanted medications, they were left in the house um, at the time that they completed the questionnaire. So again, I suppose that brings up a change of practice for us as practitioners. And I think actually COVID uh, has made me rethink things from prescribing month by month and reviewing things more frequently. So what, what are your comments and thoughts about that study and how do you minimize overprescribing in your practice? Obviously the best way to avoid wastage of medication is not to prescribe it in the first place. Um, and not for people not to pick it up unless it is necessary. Uh, the, the British Medical Association have come out just very recently with a statement about um, carbon emissions and climate change within general practice. And uh, prescribing and appropriate prescribing is one of the areas that they focused in on. I mean, th there are other benefits with avoiding overprescription, of course, but purely from an environmental point of view, if the medication is prescribed if the medication isn't picked up when it's unnecessary, obviously that's the best way you avoid the, the sort of use of them. Um, so I think that at each step, really, just ask yourself, really, is it necessary? Um, is it necessary to prescribe a medication? Is it, how, how, is it necessary to prescribe it? For how long is it necessary to prescribe it? What's the minimum amount of time? With COVID and the kind of monthly pickups now and three monthly prescriptions, people are getting used to picking up their medications more frequently, and that should be the default, really. I think it's it's um, something as people have got used to doing that they're happy to probably keep it going. And I think monthly monthly pickups is the way to go. Um, and then at the other end of the scale, it's deprescribing. It's a very broad topic, obviously, but. I think in general practice, certainly since I've been doing it, it's something that's come more to the fore as there are people in the community with multiple comorbidities who are over-medicated, who are getting old and frail, and where the appropriate thing to do is to stop medications. Um, and it can be a hard decision to make, but deprescribing is, 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 is a crucial part of it as well, and not to continue medications longer than they are necessary. The one other area I would like to see, as I mentioned, is where the carbon emissions of each individual and the environmental impact of each individual medication will be clear. And if you had a situation where you had a choice of medications, with the example up till now probably of, of the inhalers, although I think it's swung in favor of dry powder inhalers anyway, but for every other medication, you have a choice of maybe two ACE inhibitors, you have a choice of, um, I don't know, you know, different antibiotics or things like that. So we have a choice of medications to use that what could swing you would be the, the 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 environmental impact of one against the other, and that's I think the that's where pharma come into play. That that's a role that they have to play. We 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 um we're somewhat limited ourselves in terms of that. And it kind of goes back to the whole story of the problem being bigger than any one individual person, um, one individual practice, and that really systemic change is necessary as well. Just while we're on medicines, thinking about prescribing and prescriptions, our practice went paper-free overnight with COVID and we're planning to keep it that way. 
I've been trying to implement that for a number of years, so I'm delighted that it's happened. What are your thoughts about being paper-free in a practice and how likely and easy is it to do? And if you feel you have to use paper, what paper should we be using? I think it's obviously a, a, an absolutely valid goal. Um, with COVID, as you say, it just happened overnight, really. We, we Prescriptions are not being printed anymore. The fax machines are supposed to be gone by the end of the year in terms of fax prescriptions. We'll wait and see if that happens. Um, I think it's it's a laudable aim. I'm not sure we'll ever completely go paper-free. I think the, the there will still be some role for it. Um, paper resource is, is, is obtained through the university. It's all um, certified recycled paper. I mean, there, there are, I suppose, requirements around disposal of things like uh, notes um, and paper that's used, printed paper that's used that can't be recycled within the practice. Um, but we try and recycle as much as possible. Overall, it's a, probably a small component, although again, everything that we should do, that we can do, we should do. Um, and again, it's visible. You know, I think it's one thing where people can make a big improvement from a, an overflowing uh, rubbish bin or recycle bin to one that's empty. It's dramatic and obvious and clear, you know. The other thing I would say, seeing as we're on the COVID, is that um, what, one of the biggest other sources of emissions for GPs is, is transport. And um, in the NHS, they incorporate patient transport in GP practice emissions. So if someone has got a GP consultation, that the emissions that they produce traveling there is incorporated in the GP practice. Um, and I think the shift to virtual consultations as well has been dramatic. I mean, again, there there is a lot of debate about when it's appropriate to use them. But if we can avoid people traveling, again, you just completely avoid the emissions associated with the transport. And unfortunately, in New Zealand, transport is one of the biggest single sources of emissions across the country. Um, so both for ourselves, in terms of home visits, transport to and from work, there are ways of managing that and minimizing emissions but as well for patients coming in to see us. Um, and, and the last one then is would be travel to things like conferences and so on. I mean, the um, I know we had the, the Wonka conference was supposed to be on in, in Auckland. And they, in fairness to the, the college, they've really come on board recently. They've been quite proactive with uh, a new president and, um, and the board has changed over significantly as well. And there were plans at, at Wonka to have a quite a big environmental component to it unfortunately was shelved obviously but at the same time it it, it's, it sits a little bit uneasily with with people when New Zealand is a very isolated country the majority of people at the conference were going to be flying in on long-haul flights and um, again I suppose that's something that has changed with COVID things have moved online it's probably a better thing in terms of of environmental impact you know I know that there will be huge repercussions, I think, overall from, I don't think the society or the, uh, you know, economy we have after this is going to be in any way like what it was beforehand. And certainly in New Zealand, where we've been dependent on long-haul tourism and um, uh, beef, dairy um, and lamb exports, they, they're quite vulnerable to, as we've seen with, 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 with tourism, they're quite vulnerable to, to rapid shifts in, in, in mood. Um, and certainly if there's an international fashion for 
uh, low carbon impact diets, then I could see the, um, the the primary industries here being being quite vulnerable to that. And as well, I think the biggest thing is that they are missing an opportunity to to mitigate against that and to 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 position New Zealand as a leader. It's a small country, we're flexible, as we've seen with in primary care, particularly with the COVID response. Dramatic changes can happen quickly, and it's not the nicest thing in the world to have to happen, but I think the the gains that can be obtained are, are huge. Um, so if New Zealand is in a position to place itself as a leader in this, I think it would be fantastic for the future, but we will see. So we've talked about making small changes to lead on to big changes. So promoting a green and healthy lifestyle to staff and patients is important. But we are in a privileged position, as you've said, in the community and politically also. Um, I've come across a paper which raised interest and was the starting point for this podcast, actually, called Greening Your General Practice. You're familiar with this paper. I wonder if you can just tell our listeners about it, please. Yeah, absolutely. So that's um, a, a resource that's on the Royal College of General Practitioners, or Royal New Zealand College of General Practitioners uh, website. Um, I think it's embargoed for members, but obviously if anyone is keen to get it, we can we can source that for them. Um, it was developed by um, a GP in um, Wellington, Rebecca Randerson, who's been very active over the years um, and really has done most of the work with you know very few plaudits. She's just trucked away and worked and worked and worked over the years. Um, and she developed this, I think, around 2012, and then it was reviewed and put up 2016 as the uh, most recent one on the website. And it's due for uh, update right now. But um, it's an excellent resource. I think if you work through it, it's got a lot more uh, pointers than I would have in terms of managing the practice on a day-to-day basis in terms of the energy use within the practice, in terms of waste disposal, in terms of resource use within the practice. If you want discrete, concrete recommendations, they're all there. It's useful to pick and choose. Every practice is different. Every practice will have areas that they feel maybe are easier to improve. And I think go after the easiest and go after the lowest hanging fruit, first of all. And I suppose it's been on the website for a while. I think it has been downloaded a good good number of times that there's reasonable knowledge of it within the, uh, within the general practice. The, the bit that's missing is the follow-up from the college to that um, acknowledging people's work. Um, so acknowledging the use of a fantastic resource that's on the website um, and incorporating that within things like the cornerstone up until now, but as well maybe incorporating it into things like um, the GPEC programs, the educational programs, and um, making you know our next generation of GPs coming through, making them aware of the things that they can do, and because they're the people that are going to end up owning practices, they're the people that are going to end up prescribing the medications, and it's a lot easier to, uh, I suppose, get good practices maybe and um, good habits in place than to change them for kind of old dogs like me, you know. Um, so it's 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 a, as I say, fantastic resource. I would encourage people to use it. Uh, you mentioned as well about our role. Uh, as, as general practitioners, our role as, as advocates. I mean, we do it individually to patients, to families all the time. That's just probably one of the biggest parts of our work. But the other area I would 
probably recommend people would be to just consider our role as wider advocates within the societies we live in, um, within the politics that we work under. And I think to use that role, our, our role, our position is, is, is one of, um, you know, relative, um, you know, we, we're in a privileged position that, that probably is, is, it exceeds the position we should be put in. You know, I mean, we, we get a lot of respect undeserved sometimes but it's there and i think we should use it and we should use it for the, the good of our patients and our society and climate change it intersects with so many different things um with things like inequality where the people who are most likely to suffer from climate change are the ones who have caused it that have caused the least amount of emissions over the years who are most likely to suffer from environmental destruction are the ones who have not caused it within New Zealand and globally um, and the things like inequality that's you know has really has worsened in society over the last 20-30 years has been driven by the same things that are driving this kind of uh, out of control environmental destruction at the moment. I, everybody will have their own politics but I think looking at it through that lens we see that our role maybe as, as advocates um, we should we should kind of use that utilize that more the college have been good recently at coming on board and um, at supporting Otatayo. And I think they, they see the, the the importance of the intersection between healthcare and climate change. I think it's GPs. I mean, we're, we're the biggest single group of medical practitioners within the country. We're the only major group of rural general practitioners. And that's an area where there's a, a, a bit of a divide between um you know, the, the, the urban-rural divide you hear about a lot in New Zealand, but the rural areas of New Zealand and farming are, are absolutely at the front line of climate change um, and environmental destruction as people who are probably the most likely to, to suffer from it in the, in the short term. Um, and I think rural GPs, if they have time, it's, um, they, they have a crucial role to play in terms of kind of advocating and maybe getting the message out there that um, things can be done. Um, and within cities... It's really things, the things that help significantly for climate change mitigation, active transport um, and dietary change um, and elimination of things like coal burning. Um, they all have massive environmental or, or health impacts as well. You know, I mean, with, um, they reckon about 10% of premature death can be directly attributed to physical in inactivity. Um, there's about... 250 deaths per year directly from air pollution from cars and about another 700 from other sources of air pollution. So, and again, these particularly affect lower socioeconomic groups, poorer people, uh, vulnerable people, and they can be mitigated against, but not within our clinic room when a person is there saying to someone, get on your bike, go out for a run. It's just not going to happen. Whereas saying to people, local councillors, local MPs, uh, making submissions to build cycle lanes, to make the roads safe. You know, that's, that's where the changes are made. Um, and I think the thing that actually got me into this first day was living in Wellington. The, um, they were redeveloping Riddiford Street outside the hospital there, right outside the hospital. Big redevelopment. And it was a disaster. There was there was absolutely no recognition of active transport of any kind. This is one of the biggest employers within Wellington, huge number of people cycling in. And just as a statement of health, nothing. Cycle lanes were just a disaster. Even the bus stops were pretty poor. 
and then there's four massive lanes of, of, of traffic gunning past it every day, you know, and that was 2010. That's not that long ago. It made me realize that unless you actually push for these things, they're not just going to happen by default. The default and the sort of status quo is just to keep trucking along as we are. And um, ultimately, I think that's a bit of a dead end. Thank you. So to conclude our podcast today, some take-home messages for our listeners. So my take-home messages, I think we, we have um, personal and clinical changes that we can make. The, the personal things I would suggest, one that I didn't mention was our personal investments and in superannuation to divest them from um, harmful environmental activities. Um, the Medical Assurance Society, their superannuation fund has divested from fossil fuels, um, the fossil fuel industry entirely. But there are a number of others that have. It's just worth asking. Ask, ask your provider, you know, what's the story? And they'll be able to answer or not. If they don't answer, they probably haven't thought about it. And I think reducing the amount of personal travel we do in New Zealand is, is the key thing, or switching it to greener forms. So that, that, those would be the personal ones. Reduce the amount of meat you, you eat if you can. On a practice level, um, I think go after the low-hanging fruit. As, as general practitioners, really focus in on prescribing. Don't prescribe if you don't have to. Avoid back pocket prescriptions because people pick them up and don't use them. Um, prescribe monthly with repeats and de-prescribe. And absolutely, the biggest single thing is to focus in on inhalers. It sounds dramatic, but um, that as GPs right now is the biggest single thing we can do. There will be other things later. But all the other things that were mentioned and all the other things that are on the Greenian general practice um, in, in, in that uh, resource are worth doing as well. So changing light bulbs, just be, to be, I suppose, cognizant that everything has, has an impact and just to have it in the back or front of your mind with every change that's been made, what's the least environmentally damaging or what's the most environmentally sustainable way I can manage this? But inhalers, switch the inhalers. <laughs> that's the number one. Thank you. Thank you for your time today. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. For the reference that we talked about, Greening Your GP, you, you will find this on our website as well as the college website, goodfellowunit.org. Thanks very much.